Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be back in front of you to formally present the word. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for your gracious introduction this morning, too. Matt has become a close friend, and I know beloved by all of us, and I stand to offer you this morning something a little bit different from his style, which we've come to know and to love, but to explore with you some lessons that have been learned by your investment over the last 18 years in our ministry in Africa. As Matt mentioned, tomorrow begins my adventure for a month over in five countries in Africa, and I'll be accompanied by my associate, Nat Miller, who is based in Philadelphia, but he'll be joining me in Liberia to begin with, and then uh, we'll split up for a couple of countries and get back together in Nigeria. So over a month's time, we will have covered seven out of the nine countries where our ministry is established. And Prairie Hill has been with us from the very beginning, beginning in 2003, and we appreciate your support. And continue to pray for us. I have some of these cards as a reminder uh, out in the Welcome Center. Uh, we'd love for your prayer support. And if uh, every time the last 18 years that we've had a, an adventure like this, I've come at uh, last minute to also offer you an opportunity for financial support. We really, if we wanted to do everything we were hoping to do, we should get another $7,000 by tomorrow noon. So if anyone has that shaking around in their pocket, let me know. But oftentimes people are able to offer something at the end. Already many of you have contributed to this cause, and the church has corporately as well, and we appreciate that. But be praying for us, and if you do have a gift to offer, see me afterwards today. But 18 years of ministry, basically aiming to do the same thing in Africa that we do in America, which is to help churches build a generation of confident leaders and teachers. And that's done primarily through training conferences, as well as sharing literature, study Bibles, and other helpful materials that we bring uh, from time to time, and building ministerial networks across uh, the continent of Africa. And from this, I have distilled some lessons that have come, and I think they are lessons that you can grab onto and embrace yourselves uh, to be a blessing and a, a, a cause for growth in your own lives in the coming days, but in three categories. First of all, some lessons in family life. I remember about 30 years ago, I went to a funeral of one of my aunties, Aunt Lorraine, and was with my mom, and I saw a guy across the room, and I, I recognized him from the downtown YMCA where I was working out regularly, and I said, Mom, who's that guy? And he said, oh, that's my first cousin, Tom Walters. And I said, really? He's actually related to us? And I had no idea. Tom was the guy who often lockered right next to me at the downtown Y. And it revealed to me how disconnected Americans are from their extended family. We, can, uh, we, we don't really know who we're talking to sometimes uh, in an average day. But in, in Africa, that would never happen. People have such an awareness of family and their connectedness with aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews that that would never, never elude them. 
And the importance of extended family is not simply for kind of a familial uh, feel, but it is really a practical matter of having uh, financial and economic support as well. In Africa, the banking system does not do the average man a lot of good. In fact, uh, interest rates run 25 or 30 percent, so oftentimes it's only a bridge loan that a businessman might take at those rates. But for the average person, the informal banking system within the extended family and your network of friends is what gives you the money to get by. And so people are borrowing all the time and they're robbing Peter to pay Paul oftentimes in this informal network that gives them financial security as well as emotional security as they move forward. So lesson number one, something that we might want to keep in mind for our own lives here in the United States is that well-developed extended family connections provide security. I know in my own family I have some members of the extended family that complain that in America and amongst us Scandinavians we just don't stick together like we ought to. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) It's a healthy thing to see strong family structures and we can work toward that. But There also are lessons within the nuclear family that have come to me along the way. I found a very engaging young man a few years ago, met him on an airplane traveling toward Lagos. Turns out that he is a German language instructor. Now, there are not too many German language instructors you find in Nigeria, but he actually grew up for the first part of his life in Germany along with his parents who were doing business there and they came back and he finished off high school and university and now he's kicked off his career and Prince Benjamin is his name in his conversations with me uh, revealed a little bit more of African culture and he said you know Bishop by the way they do call me Bishop over there I have to go halfway around the world to get any respect but (laughs) said Bishop You must realize, between a Nigerian parent and their child, there is an emotional disconnect. Very rarely will you hear from your parent the words, I love you, or I am proud of you, but they believe their primary responsibility is to be a chief disciplinarian, to make sure that the kids do not wind up being like those spoiled brats in America. (laughs) And uh, he said, you know, I have seen the West, and I have seen Nigeria, and I'll take the Western way any day. A kid needs to be built up and encouraged and not beaten down. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Well, I tell you, that is something. I've shared that quip with several Africans, and they'll say, yeah, we do have a problem with that. We don't encourage our kids as much as we should. However, being Americans and with your eyes wide open, you would have to uh, agree that the the line about the spoiled brats in America may not be too far off. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Anyway, uh, there's a balance, a biblical balance that needs to be arrived at. We're aware of what in Ephesians uh, tells us uh, in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. The principle of obedience and respect for parents is set, but just a few verses later it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. 
Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so there needs to be a balance between this Western concept and the, and the African concept, a biblical balance where a principle comes forward that parents need to take care to maintain a balance of discipline and emotional support for their children. And that's a lifelong process for us as parents to strike that biblical balance. Lessons in family life. Family is very, very important in Africa. It's important for us too. But the extended family that goes as far as the eye can see sometimes in that culture uh, gives a sense of connectedness both socially and emotionally that we could very well emulate on this side of the ocean. Lessons in family life. I've also learned some lessons in church life that are important uh, as we've moved forward in the last 18 years. One of them centers on the importance of the Word of God. When I first began this venture and we accepted the invitation to go to Africa, I didn't know where to start in terms of teaching or preaching. Uh, I was a a cultural fish out of water. I didn't know African culture from anything else in the world. In fact, uh, if anything, I had a bit of a negative attitude toward Africa, given uh, some of the things I had been exposed to in missionary conferences growing up. And it was a foreign thing to me. And I I went to somebody who'd have some answers, and that was Dr. Tom Cairns at the a free church mission who worked for 25 years as a missionary in Congo. And I said, Tom, give me some advice. I don't know African culture. I don't know African church culture. I don't know how many mistakes I'm going to be making as I enter into that context. And he smiled and he said, ah, Tim, don't worry about that. Stick to the word and you'll never go wrong. And so he said, why don't you start out by doing a series on on leadership principles out of the book of Nehemiah. That would be a great way to start. And so with that advice, I went forward, and it's a, it's a fascinating and reassuring fact that what Paul told Timothy long ago still remains true, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God, for that matter, might be perfect or mature and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's a great truth that is true here in the United States, but it's true in Africa, it's true on every continent of the world. Can you say amen? Amen. The word of God is what we have confidence in and the only thing that gives us confidence to stand in front of a crowd of people who are very different from you culturally. And so that that was a great... Great revelation, something I already believed, but it, is, it has come clear to me over these last years that the Word of God is universally applicable to every culture. But the context in which I was thrust was an interesting one. I'm a free church boy. I, I don't know how many born and bred free churchers we have in this room. There are many grafted in roots in the free church movement. Uh, but I was born into a free church to a free church pastor and, and his wife. And um, so I had that background. And if you read the historical literature of the free church, it is described oftentimes 
as a non-Pentecostal but not anti-Pentecostal church. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? And so I was a free church boy basically working with all Pentecostal pastors and church leaders on that side of the ocean. So there was an initial uh, stretch in my perception of what the church was all about. In fact, this is one additional lesson that we can learn, is that the, the true church is really a larger tent than we think. God is present, and uh, the gospel is preached, Christ is exalted, and the Spirit is leaned upon in many places where sometimes we wonder if it really does or not. But the style of what you experience there on a Sunday morning and else, elsewise uh, is, is a little different from what you might experience here at Prairie Hill. Now, um, John, I know you're, you're a very excellent worship leader, but you haven't quite got the African style down yet. I'm not criticizing you. For me, uh, that was a stretch in, in appreciation of that. But as part of that, the African Pentecostal expectation of God's presence and power is something that I have learned. They really expect that God's going to show up. And they expect that God is going to act on our behalf. In fact, uh, their testimonies every Sunday in church uh, reveal that over and over again. And that's something in our quiet Scandinavian Minnesota style we could learn, is to really begin to expect that God is going to show up. This even is reflected in the way we, we approach God in prayer. Here in America, we have, in the evangelical world, have what we call prayer requests, where we very, very quietly and hesitantly go before God, and it's almost if we're saying, God, if, if, you, if you've got the time, if, if you could take a little bit of interest in my situation, uh, could, could, you, could you help me out here a little bit? Well, that's not the spirit of the African Pentecostal. They don't have prayer requests. They have prayer points, which really are points in a, in a speech that you make to God telling him what he's going to do. And it's with confidence and expectation that God is going to accomplish something by your prayers and uh, through his faithfulness. Can you say amen to that? Can we grasp that and embrace that spirit from the other side of the ocean? We can logically expect great things from an omnipotent God. It's not illogical that God will bring about great things. And actually, we're coming up on the Thanksgiving season and we'll probably have our usual Thanksgiving Eve service here where people testify to the goodness of God, to the provision of God, and how beyond our expectation, God provides and he, he is evident in, in our daily lives and in our regular provision. That's something we should expect with anticipation and joy as we walk with God. Expectation. We can logically expect great things from an omnipotent God. That's part of the church culture that regularly people are exposed to from time to time as they get together. Within that culture, though, too, there is great respect for authority within the church. Uh, Oftentimes, both pastors and people will repeat that word of King David, who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? And at one level, uh, that's an important lesson to learn. Uh, 
there's a certain residue in American thinking that was left over from the 1960s where revolutionaries told us regularly to question authority, to don't trust anybody over 30. And that kind of gives you pause, doesn't it? Trust only people 30 or under. I don't know if that's a formula for success or not, but uh, that's the spirit that has been cast within our American culture. Not so in Africa. Those who have respect for authority within the church uh, elevate their pastors to a level sometimes beyond what it ought to be, but with great reverence. I'm grateful that within this church, we've generally had great respect for our pastors. Matt, I hope you feel that from, from the people. Uh, and that's, that's a wonderful thing about Prairie Hill culture. Sometimes, though, pastors are not considered to be any more important than any other member of the church, and uh, their respect is downplayed and downgraded. Uh, the Africans do not allow that to happen, and we make, must make sure that we, we avoid that American democratization of, of leadership and church life to the point where we don't give adequate reverence to those who have special responsibility within our ministries. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Ah, that's a wonderful thing about Africa. But the other side of that coin, and respect for authority... Well, let's stay on that first side of the coin. (laughs) The lesson stated is that we should express respect for authority that God has ordained. And the principle from uh, Romans 13 is there, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. It's God's intention that both in society and church that there be order and not chaos. There's a principle of authority and leadership that's been established that we need to respect and obey. But it's possible in that kind of culture, in that kind of Uh, general attitude toward leadership, that leadership will take advantage of that, to take advantage of it and to take that expression, who are you to touch the Lord's anointed and beat you over the head, and try to suppress any kind of criticism that may come up. And uh, that is a tendency in African culture to have top-down leadership, whereas my colleague Nat Miller says, in Africa, leadership is not so much leadership as it is chieftaincy, where the chief is in charge and he lays down the law, and it's my way or the highway in attitude. And the goal, therefore, as a leader is to maintain control and dependency on you as a man of God in the church. And this is expressed in a lot of ways, one of which is um, is got theological roots. There is um, there are three dimensions of ministry or three dimensions of the ministry there which I try to teach against some weaknesses and excesses of African Pentecostalism. First of all is prosperity gospel where uh, health and wealth gospel is presented, where God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And the way to achieve that is by you sowing your, your money into the ministry. 
if you want to reap, you must sow. And if you really want to reap, you must sow into my ministry. And if you depart from this place and go to some other fellowship out there, you can well question whether you are even born again. Ah, those are the kinds of sentiments that come. And the attempt then is to hold your people there, make sure they realize it's only through the giving of their gifts that they're going to be blessed. And then there will be those who are in over-the-top deliverance ministry. There's a lot about deliverance ministry I don't understand, and some of it I don't even think is proper. But uh, deliverance in a place where the spirit world is given a great deal of play and respect is very important. And there will be the sense that you are in bondage to your ancestral spirits. And you need to be delivered. And if you really want to be delivered, you need my touch. And, and we will see to it that the demons are cast out of you. And if you want to seal that, then you need to sow some money into my ministry. It always comes back to a financial arrangement somehow. But some ministries are based solely on deliverance. So that uh, there's one Nigerian pastor I know in Belgium who has deliverance services four times a week. And the same people keep coming back to be delivered over and over again. And uh, at some point I want to say to him, it is, does it not say if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Can you say amen to that? And yet it's, a, it's an opportunity, another opportunity for people to maintain control and dependency on the man of God. And then a more recent development that's come in, in recent years, oh, it's always been there, but it's really hot now, is prophetic ministry, where extra-biblical revelation is coming, where the, the man of God will say, your future is in my mouth. You must listen to me. I have God's word for you. And for all those who are willing to sow a $200 seed into our ministry. Line up over here and I will give you a special word from God. Well, those kinds of things actually do happen. In all of those instances, though, the implication is the only way that the blessing of God can come to you is through me. And that makes the man of God or the woman of God a mediator between God and man. And we know from the word that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Can you say amen? And so this matter of attempting to establish control and coercion and, uh, and uh, dependency is, is totally in opposition to the model that the Apostle Paul expressed in Ephesians 4. Now, the Ephesians 4 model, oftentimes called the fivefold ministry in Pentecostal circles, uh, is an interesting thing. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And uh, if you look at that exegetically, number one, the pastor teacher is a hyphenated term, uh, which really means it's not a fivefold ministry, but a fourfold ministry. And then uh, Paul said elsewhere that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which might imply to me that uh, the apostles and prophets are already baked into the cake. Uh, they're in the foundation. And so all we got left are evangelists and pastor teachers. 
Um, I'm not going to pick that fight with those, those folks, but they love the titles, though, in that culture, so much so that they will even give themselves titles when they don't deserve them. Uh, I remember when I first came to Nigeria way back when, I was invited to speak at the one-year anniversary of a guy's ministry in Lagos. And he signed his invitation letter, Reverend Richard. Well, the next uh, year I got a letter for the second anniversary celebration, and he signed the letter, Bishop Richard. (laughs) The third year I got a letter from him, and he signed it, Cardinal Richard. (laughs) And I thought, this is great. This guy is really working his way up in his own organization. Uh, A new title every year. Well, those titles are not there simply to puff people up and to give them a sense of importance. Uh, Whatever title that you have as a leader in the church has a particular purpose according to Ephesians 4. And what was that? It is to equip the saints to do the work of service and the work of ministry. It's every saint who is the minister. Every member is a minister. Repeat after me. Every member a minister. Okay. That is what we need to, we continually uh, drive into the minds of our, of our African brothers is that the church is what is to be encouraged and built up and not to be made dependent on us but to be liberated to to serve in the way that God intends for them to serve we need to encourage therefore servant leaders who aim to command and not demand the respect of others to set them free to be all that they should be by God's grace ah the church has got some tremendous strengths in Africa and it's energizing to be in their presence. But uh, they, they also have some weaknesses. And uh, I have benefited from the strengths, and I've worked with them to correct certain notions over these last years. Lessons in church life. But then there's been some lessons in personal life that have come as well. You know, from the heat and humidity of West Africa especially, there are some life lessons. In Minnesota, in our climate here, um, most of the year we don't have any problems sweating. Um, And, you know, up until, I don't know what, this year I think we exceeded our 11 days of 90 degree plus temperatures here. But uh, we're pretty successful in, uh, even in warm weather, from running from one air-conditioned spot to another, and we can avoid sweating. Well, in Africa, that's absolutely impossible. You can go from a relatively air-conditioned hotel room, and as soon as you open that door, pow, you get smacked in the face with this heavy heat and humidity. And for a few minutes, there's discomfort until you start sweating. And then you remember that principle from your seventh grade life science course, evaporation has a... Very good. American education has succeeded. A cooling effect. And you get cooled down by the evaporation of the sweat on your body. And that's a blessing. Sweating is a blessing. And if you keep hydrated all day, you just keep on sweating and keep getting cooled off. And finally you can go back to the hotel room at night and wash it off. And the whole process starts over the next day. Doesn't that encourage you, Mary? (laughs) 
that's one reason she's never gone to Africa with me. <laughs> the heat and humidity factor. But you know, there's a spiritual lesson there. Avoiding pain, avoiding uh, discomfort is something that will keep you from experiencing growth. We must learn the benefits of a good sweat. James said in his letter, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking, not lacking anything. If we were to pass the microphone around today to all of you, we'd get a couple dozen testimonies from your own lives as to how your greatest growth as a human being and as a believer has happened not during times of ease, not times when you're comfortable, not when you're enjoying a lack of opposition, but through difficulties, through the times when we've really had to sweat it out. But God has met us at our point of need and has helped us get beyond that point. Can you say amen to that? Oh, right now there are some of you who are sweating in various situations in life, relationally, health issues, financial issues. And uh, my challenge to you and to me is not to totally avoid those things. Of course, don't take on more than you need to. But we need to face it, embrace it, and trust the grace of God to see us through to greater growth. We must learn the benefits of a good sweat. I've learned some lessons, though, about time as well. Uh, Time in the African culture is uh, considered on a different basis than than we do here in the West. Um, I was speaking at uh, Prairie Lutheran Church last year or two, and uh, I was assigned the subject, Thou Shalt Not Steal. And so as part of that, I was talking about the fact that when we do not manage time, when we don't show up on appointments on time, when we when we force people to waste time, we really are stealing from them. And time is life. And I, I found that to be true uh, back, in, back in my first trip in Africa. Uh, my host, Bishop Success was his name. He said, uh, I mind time. I was trained by the British. And uh, we have a 9 o'clock in the morning session tomorrow. I will pick you at 8.45 and bring you to the venue. And we will start the day. I said, okay. So he was there, 8.45. We went over to the venue, and there wasn't a soul around. (laughs) Not even the host pastor was there. Nobody was there. And I sat there for about 20 minutes, and then he said, let's go back to the hotel. Well, we went back to the hotel and we didn't get started teaching till about 11.45 that morning. Uh, and I just found that that is just the way it is with, with Africans. But on that morning in, uh, at Prairie Lutheran, I said, I, I know, are our Ghanaian friends here? There's a Ghanaian family there. And they said, yes, Bishop, I'm here. I said, well, is there something we call African time? Is that not right? And he says, yes, sir. And that's a bit of a frustration for you, is it not? And he says, yes, sir. Well, afterwards, uh, there was a middle-aged white guy who came up to me and 
He said, I have to take issue with you, with what you said in your message. You are trying to impose an American Western concept of time on people who do not embrace that. That's just the way Africans are, and you shouldn't be critical. And I said, well, it's not that I'm critical. Africans themselves are critical of it. It's, uh, it's a, a frustration to them that they are not keeping time and that they're not respecting other people's time. Time is of the essence. You know, every one of us has 168 hours a week, every one of us, and we are asked to invest it wisely for the glory of God. It is something which uh, Paul says in Ephesians, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. You know, we look at our own current day, uh, the current events, what's happening here in the U.S. and around the world, and we realize just how bad it is out there. And if indeed we're going to make the kind of impact God intends for us to make as a church, we need to invest our time wisely, not in a panic sort of way, but with intentionality to make sure that we do not lose opportunities and let them slip through our fingers. Can you say amen to that? The principle, the lesson... We must proceed through life with a sense of peaceful urgency, recognizing that this is the day that the Lord has made, and uh, today is the day of salvation. I have appreciated lessons I've learned in mentoring along the way. Uh, We're admonished in uh, Titus, uh, teach the older men to be temperate, Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. And this idea that, uh, and then furthermore to, to share that wisdom with the younger generation. I find both in Africa and in America the transfer of wisdom and knowledge from one generation to the next is not being done at a fever pitch. Um, And it's happening to some extent within families, and I'm grateful for that. But within the body of Christ itself, it's amazing to me as I go, sometimes I don't see some people for 18 months at a time, but those who I've had some personal connection with, I've had conversations with, and have a relationship at some level, will come back to me and say, you know, Bishop, I appreciated so much in your teaching last time you were here. Bing, bing, bing. They'll identify that. Uh, And I realize it's a wonderful thing to establish relationships with, with people in another generation. There's an intergenerational blessing that can take place if we seize those opportunities. Uh, I get so many, uh, texts and emails, mostly on WhatsApp or Messenger these days from guys who will say things like this. Thank you so much, Daddy. And my son, Jeff, is jealous of those African boys calling me Daddy. In fact, my daughter-in-law said recently, don't they realize he only has one son? (laughs) But he says, I feel so loved and blessed each time I wake up to your emails. 
You are a good father, and I love you so very much. I enjoy fellowship with you, even via emails. What a joy. You are my best influence from 2018 till forever. (laughs) Thank you for being such a loving father. I get dozens of those kinds of expressions which remind me of the fact that in this world where there's so much fatherlessness and disconnectedness, I've had an opportunity, an unusual opportunity, to connect with young people, to encourage them, and to prod them forward. And I want to uh, encourage you. All of you have the same opportunity. Right where you are, within your family systems, within your communities, in your local coffee shops, Uh, There are people there who need your touch and your word and your encouragement. I know I've harped on that subject many times before as I've preached with you, but it's been such a a moving and life-changing thing for me that I want to encourage all to become obedient to God's direction, to be sensitive to the opportunities that are out there. We must enter into mentoring relationships to maximize intergenerational blessing. Find younger and older people. We should all be mentored by someone and mentor somebody else so that we're linking up people of various experiences and, and, uh, and life wisdom in order to better do what God's called us to do. And then I've uh, learned a lesson or two on intonation. It's a challenge as a white person going to Africa to be properly understood. Uh, They tell me many times there are some white uh, Westerners who will come in and teach for an entire week. And these Nigerians, being very polite as they are, just nodding their heads and smiling, but they're not understanding anything. And so I was warned when I first came, make sure that you speak very slowly and clearly. So people will be able to understand your American accent, or they may not understand. And so I thought I was obeying that directive, and so I went through five trips. I was coming to the end of my visit in Lagos, Nigeria, and the Lagos State Chapter Chairman came up to me, and he said, Ah, Bishop, I love your teaching so much. By the second day of your teaching, I was finally able to understand what you were saying. And I said, really? What, what percentage of my presentation did you understand? He said, maybe 30%. I said, 30%? That's terrible. I'm coming all this way, spending all this money, and you don't understand any more than that? Well, I don't, didn't know what to do about that Till later in the year, I was back in Nigeria, and I was presenting my famous shipwreck story. And some of you have heard that one where we went through a shipwreck on the Atlantic Ocean between Cameroon and Nigeria back in 2004, and the boat began to sink, and we all got put onto life rafts and bobbed around on the ocean for a couple of hours and got picked up by a rescue vessel that took us back to Cameroon. And I tell this whole story, and I offer four spiritual lessons. Well, I got done with the story, and my African director jumped up and he said, I don't believe the people are hearing you. They're not understanding you. Brother Simon, stand up and interpret for him. And so uh, Brother Simon stood up, and in my Minnesota accent, I continued to say, and so these are the lessons from our shipwreck experience. And Brother Simon interpreted, and so these are the lessons from our shipwreck experience. 
And I thought, if it's only intonation you need, I can do that. I said, Brother Simon, sit down. And I launched into the most exaggerated Nigerian intonation that I could muster. And afterwards, people came up and said, Ah, we heard you so clearly. (laughs) That was wonderful. And so ever since then, I have adopted my Nigerian intonation all across Africa so that uh, they can better understand me. It knocks the edges off of my American accent. And even when the telephone rings and I get a call from over there, I will whip into my Nigerian accent and my wife thinks I have flipped my lid. (laughs) But anyway, in the process, by the way, I shared that with Joshua Chegi, a Kenyan brother in Duluth a few years ago, and and he stopped me and he said, and I must tell you, that was the Holy Spirit working in your life. You were sensitive to the needs of your hearers and you changed your intonation in order to be better understood. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, there's something very profound about that. Because I believe that's happening in each one of our lives each week. The Holy Spirit of God, by the ministry of the word, by the encouragement of the body of Christ, has instilled certain things in you. An understanding of of life and what's right, what's wrong, what needs to be done at any one point in time. And even without referencing any of that, We respond by the prompting of the Spirit that's a still small voice in us to do what is right. Can you say amen to that? And as we relate to other people, that special sensitivity is what the Spirit will give to us so that you listen to people and you learn the slightly different way that they talk and think. You begin to understand them and you tailor your ministry to them in a special way that will reach them. As the Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Enter into that kind of spirit cooperation in your life. We must be sensitive to the Spirit's prompting to meet the needs of others in ways that connect with them. But finally, personally, I have found lessons about open doors that lie ahead. You know, we're told in the uh, Psalms that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now that's a light that's focused on our feet and right here in our path. And that does not mean that you've got a 25-year plan ahead of you but you trust God for enlightenment and direction one step at a time. And that's precisely how God has led us through these last years. You know, we, we kid ourselves if we think we can establish a, even a five-year plan for, for life, a five, 10, 15, 20-year plan. Uh, God wants us to live by faith and not by sight one step at a time. Can you say amen to that? I have found in my own career, uh, that that's what happened to me. Uh, It was one open door after the other that came my way. Steve Palmquist is here this morning, and he was part of the first open door. When uh, I landed here in Minneapolis, I went to meet some friends at a Como Park hymn sing in the old days, and they didn't show up, but Steve was along with a couple of other guys from 
Central Free Church, and we spent the evening together, and uh, a couple of those were old college friends of mine, and they invited me then to join the choir at Central Free Church, and I began to sing in the choir, and a new guy got some special responsibilities as president of the choir, and then soon there was a, a young adult Sunday school class that was given to me to teach. And after a year or so of that, uh, we had expanded to the point where the pastor recognized what was happening and he brought me on as his right-hand man, as minister of congregational development. And we continued working there for a year or two. And then the Minnesota Sunday School Association opened a door for me to join the board of directors there and began to work there. And our programming developed to the point where they opened another door where I was made executive director in 1984. And we continued to go into many different open doors around the state of Minnesota till we got that mystery email from Nigeria in 2002 you got to be careful about those Nigerian emails. You never know what they may be promising. But it opened up a door for ministry that has now expanded all across Africa in nine different countries. It's opened up opportunities in five different countries in Europe and in cities all over the United States. And uh, also just finished printing out the latest certificates for our continuing education certification program. We have four to 500 pastors now involved in that program in, in uh, Africa, where in individual places they are meeting on a monthly basis to receive African training by Africans in an African context, and they are being celebrated and recognized through this certification. All of that has happened one step at a time, one open door at a time. And what I'm challenging you and me to, to recognize this morning, as we move forward, God's not going to give you that 25-year plan. We must walk through the open doors in front of us to faithfully do the work of God. Every one of us, as we go from this place, have open doors of opportunity, and we must be close enough to the Lord as we walk with him in our devotional life, in our prayer life, and studying the word, to be able to listen to the Spirit, to recognize this is a new opportunity that's right in front of me, to glorify God and to be a blessing to other people, and I must have the boldness to walk through the door. Can you say amen to that? Ah, those are some of the lessons I've learned over 18 years of your investment in this particular ministry. God will bless us as we process our own lives. Think through your own life and see how the truths of Scripture are illustrated in your daily experience. And then make up your mind to glorify God and be a blessing to everyone you meet as you move forward. And God will raise you to a higher level of effectiveness than ever before as you walk with him and glorify him in all things. It shall be so. It shall be so. It shall be so by God's grace and power. Amen. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings of life. And Lord... I'm praying that some of those thoughts this morning 
that have uh, revealed truths about both African-American culture, but most importantly, truths from your scripture can be embraced by my brothers and sisters and make a difference in the days ahead. Help us all to glorify you in all that we do and say and every life that we touch for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.